Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, where we will bring you some of the most interesting interviews and features from the world of tech. Visit irishtechnews.ie and check out our podcast section to explore all of our previous episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast using whatever your favourite app or service is by visiting anchor.fm forward slash irish-tech-news. Hi, so today on Irish Tech News, uh, we're continuing our theme of occasionally speaking to futurists uh, because I think it's pretty interesting. And the person we have in today has has a decades long track record in this sector. So first of all, who do we have the pleasure of talking to today? Hi, Simon, I'm Glenn Heemstra from Seattle, Washington. Awesome. Um, So for those that don't know much about you, how would you describe what it is that you do? Well, I am the founder of Futurist.com. I've been a professional futurist, which means a consultant and professional speaker in the futurist field for over 30 years. In my early life, I was a college professor, but I left that as the 90s began. So here we are, you know, three decades or three decades, slightly plus. Uh, And so I, I have worked with numerous organizations and in numerous settings, primarily helping organizations or enterprises or the right groups of people to think longer term than they usually do using various kinds of tools and methodologies and attempting to you know produce various kinds of outputs whether that's called a vision or a plan or a, or just a a new way of thinking mm-hmm. Um, look, I mean, and so so once upon a time, we worked for a regeneration agency in Dublin, um, but they, they they wanted their KPIs. They wanted us to to deliver on quarterly quarterly milestones. But obviously, some of the things that we said we could do and we would do took 15 years. They did happen, but they didn't happen in three months. How do you uh, manage deal with that expectation management when you work with companies that while you're advising about the long term, they're often on uh, shorter timeframes? Well, that's 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 a very, very good question. And and it's a challenge. Uh, There are two things that I'll say about that. Number one, the organizations that I've tended to work with and those who literally uh, go on the on the internet and, and search for a futurist and they find futurist.com and so they contact us and um, what they say is we routinely do relatively short-term strategic planning we'd like to do something looking longer term you know help us this one time look 10 years ahead or 20 years ahead in the case of the of the boeing company uh two or three years ago on their 100th anniversary they decided to look 100 years ahead and so they, they literally call when they want to kind of step back and look further ahead than they usually do. The second thing I'll say is that the act of looking longer term actually can have some very good spillover into near term actions. In fact, that's what I really encourage them to do to try to adopt the, the kind of backwards view. You look at that long term, you put yourself in it, and then you look back at literally the next year or two and ask, so what would we be doing in that next year or two that we would otherwise not be doing if we really want to get into or prepare for this much longer term future? And they usually discover, you know, one or two or three kind of strategic initiatives or uh, things that they they ought to be doing that they might not otherwise have thought of if they had just done the routine three-year strategic plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and I guess that's, that's what you're hoping, helping them to try and see, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but my favorite uh, experience of that, I mentioned the, the, the Boeing company, and uh, they, they turned 100 actually now, gosh, it's five years ago, 2016. And uh, I had done a lot of work for them over the years, being based here in Seattle, where, of course, 
their primary operations have always been. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'd done a lot of leadership training and things like that for them. So they called me up and said, we want to do something significant to look 100 years ahead. So um, quick short story. I, so I, we created an internal team and I worked with them and, and we eventually planned a, a three-day kind of retreat symposium of about 25 key Boeing senior leaders and and then about a dozen external subject matter experts, uh, research director from NASA, uh, academics from Oxford and Stanford and MIT and Caltech, and, and, and then a couple of other industry people from companies like Intel. And, and we spent this magical three days just trying to imagine what the future of aerospace and travel and airplanes and space travel and manu- what manufacturing would look like. Uh, and then e- even the d- defense world, you know, what, what would the, the world geopolitics look like in a hundred years, but then we, we telescoped all that back and, and we said, so what does that mean the Boeing company should be should be studying? It's, you know, we don't really need to do anything about this, but we should put it on a radar and have teams looking at this for the long term. Uh, and then we had a couple of other questions, one, one of which was, is there anything that we should be doing in the next couple of years? Uh, and uh, literally a couple of years later, I met with the, with the key, one of the key players from the team who worked with me to put all that together. And she named three different programs in the Boeing company, she said, these are programs that began because of that event. Cool. So there you go. Yeah. 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 And so that's, that's positive. Um, um, so with, with where we are now, uh, Ireland, you know, three lockdowns, 12 months into a global pandemic, um, in, from your perspective, has the pandemic, uh, nudged any adoption trends faster or slower in relation to, to things that you have been kind of advocating or predicting over the last few decades? I would say, yes. Early, early on in the pandemic, we're literally one year from it, a year ago. In fact, I was just going to repoint it at, at futurist.com to the article that I wrote, preparing for the pandemic, because I, it was pretty obvious that, that, that it was coming, that was going to be significant, but it's been far more significant than, than I imagined. And of course, far more significant than even those who did scenarios of what pandemics would look like. So early on, I didn't think that things would change permanently all that much, that we would, for example, do a lot of work from home now, and then as soon as it was possible to go back, we'd, we'd all go back. And, and I still think that, that a year or two from now, and maybe maybe more like three or four years from now, assuming the whole world gets vaccinated and, 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 we, and this is really behind us, we might discover that things have not changed quite as much as it appears they will right now. But having said that, uh, the, the things that, that have accelerated, number one, uh, research in vaccines and development of vaccines. Yeah. I mean, who, who knew that? I mean, we, we sort of knew that science could speed up and was capable of speeding up, particularly when it was as globally connected as it is. But now we've we've proven that concept. It's been a proof of concept uh, moment. So anytime a, a new disease pops up, uh, I think we'll see much faster cycling of, of medical research and the development of either treatments or uh, vaccines and so on. So that's really great news. Yeah. Um, on the technology front, obviously people are really curious about what, what will become of, of, of the whole, um, you know, video meeting, Zoom meeting, uh, doing everything uh, much more remotely. Interestingly enough, um, I, I, got, I started kind of thinking of myself as a futurist about 1980, I actually gave my very first futurist presentations then while I was an academic in the field of communications. And what I was asking beginning in 1980 was, how will computer networks change how human beings and organizations communicate? That was literally my research. 
uh, about which uh, on which I published some papers in 1981, 82, 83, right in there. Um, and so it's been really fascinating. And, and I was studying early teleconferencing and literally getting looking at tra taking transcripts of teleconferences and then analyzing how differently people talk to each other when they were in a video chat or an audio chat versus when they were face to face and writing papers about that. So here we are where, where now most of the world has, uh, you know, I, I'm perhaps it's more I could say much of the world is much more immersed in what we can think of as, as you know, online communication. Uh, will it be permanent? I think it. I, I think that we've learned a lot. The technology has advanced uh, quite uh, nicely in in this year. You know that the tools are much more robust, much easier to use. There's many more of them, uh, and so I will be very surprised if an awful lot of what was formerly business travel and business communication doesn't continue to take place remotely. It, it dovetails very well with with the desire to decrease carbon output. Uh, and, and so on. I, I do think we'll see more people back in offices than some might suspect right now. Uh, then uh, as, as it becomes safe to, to be around each other in offices, I think we'll see a, a surprising amount of craving to be around people closely again. Um, but, uh, but that whole telecommunications, uh, remote communications thing has accelerated quite, quite clearly. Um, so, though, though, you know, on, on the medical side and on the communication side, probably the, probably the two biggest. Um, so, uh, the the one that's been most disappointing that has not accelerated, and that's partly because of the political stance that that exists in the United States in the last four years until until January, is that one would think that we would have seen a much heightened level of global cooperation. Uh, sort of global institutions tackling the pandemic in a highly cooperative way. And instead we, we saw nations basically retreating into you know, national approaches and within nations even, even to regional and here in the United States to state approaches to, to how to deal with this thing. And so instead of a, a much heightened level of, of global cooperation, we saw actually a lowered level of global cooperation. And that really surprised me. Uh, that, 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 that could change. Uh, you know, now going forward with, with new leadership in the United States, I'm hoping that it, that it will, that we'll see a little bit more of, of a global drive to say, so how do we, how do we take on the solving the rest of the pandemic uh, globally? But that's one that did not accelerate. If anything, it, it accelerated in the, in the opposite direction of sort of the, the trend toward more and more global institutions and global cooperation on things. That's sort of reversed when this emergency mm -hmm. hit. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I guess that so much of U.S. politics over the last four years has been uh, breaking norms and not following things. And now the question is, is you know, was that an aberration or, or is, is that is that the new normal? Um, so I guess that that's still up for play. Um, so I guess with with you having been uh, in the business now for for multiple decades. Um, a lot of futurists like to then, uh, you know, kind of uh, reckon, or do a reckoning like on what their batting record is. So, so how 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 would you, you know, say like if you if you listen to Ray Kurzweil, he's he's very confident and on his predictions that have come off, you know, to more or less yes. a degree. Uh, yes. How, how how's it been for you, like from from things that you were looking at from the eighties and nineties? Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to share something with you and, and the listeners. I literally have, I literally found, I found these uh, a few months ago. 
looking through an old file box. But the outlines of the two original speeches I gave as a future to 1980. Great. Spring of 1980. And so I'm just going to click through the, uh, I'm, I'm looking at one of them, um, mm -hmm. handwritten on a piece of, of yellow scratch paper, <laughs> yellow line paper. Um, and what I said was that, uh, I, won't, I won't do the speech, but I said, you know, what futures want to do is to, to look for dominant trends and emergent trends. And I said, and dominant trends are fairly obvious. For example, at the 1980, I said the dominant trends were energy scarcity, the energy scarcity and transition in energy, which is kind of interesting to have been talking about that in 1980. But then I said yeah. there, there are, are emergent themes, and that's where you can get an advantage by thinking like a futurist. This is what I said the emergent themes were. Number one, telecommunications and information processing. That would eventually, I said, result in a merge into a home terminal that would combine telephone, TV, personal computer, radio, video recorder, printers, and provide entertainment, information access, elect electronic funds, transfers, electronic mail, education, and work. Um, so that was pretty good. But, but within that, here's a forecast that I made. By 1990, there will be 1 billion telephones in the world. Most of them will be direct dial and have 17-digit numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's pretty funny. Yeah, so we avoided uh, that one. Yeah. Yeah, we, yeah. So, but but the home terminal, we, we didn't know about cell phones in 1980. I mean, it was only a couple of years later that, that they began to be invented. Uh, I did mention fiber, fiber optics. I mentioned satellites. Um, the second one that I mentioned was world hunger, that it would be a major problem of the next uh, 20 years or so. Uh, and that turned out not to be uh, as accurate. That You know, we, we've obviously had uh, challenges providing food. Uh, and there have been uh, parts of the world which have which have and still do suffer from hunger, but it hasn't been a, a global catastrophe uh, like we yeah. were thinking in 1980. Uh, and then I talked about life engineering, life extension, genetic engineering, recombinant DNA, uh, and and said that would be a, a big thing. That was that was quite accurate. Uh, then I mentioned space uh, exploration would be. Um, a growing trend over the next 20 years. And it was not so much in the 80s and 90s, but now is. So 40 years later, uh, space exploration, I think, is, is one of almost now, not an emergent uh, theme, but a dominant theme. And then, uh, yeah, uh, then I, I mentioned the, the need to deal with weapons of war. Uh, and, you know, the early 1980s was all about nuclear disarmament and nuclear proliferation, and people were really quite worried about that even, even at that time. And that's been been largely dealt with, uh, you know. It, it always kind of floats there as a potential threat. And then the last one is that I mentioned as as an emergent theme was uh, new occupations. I said there would be a labor shortage in high skill manual work, mechanical, electrical, electronics, elect, uh, and uh, other things like that. Um, and there would be a shortage of engineers, uh, especially uh, in the fields of computer augmented design and, and manufacturing techniques and in life sciences. So, um, you know, I, I would say that the, the track record was pretty good. Uh, the, the two things that I've gotten the most wrong, uh, I would okay. say, are uh, th those are always kind of interesting. In the 90s, I was really telling people that, that hydrogen would be the thing for transportation. I didn't think that batteries would uh, develop uh, in the way that they have that, that enabled a, a high degree of electrification of transportation using battery technology. The debate between hydrogen and batteries long term still is in play, but uh, but batteries do do appear to be uh, a more 
robust technology right now. So I literally said by 2010, uh, gasoline cars would be over and cars would be running on on uh, hydrogen fuel cells, raw. Um, the other one, uh, yeah, I remember being asked in, around 2000, people began to worry about global pandemics and uh, plagues and so on. And, and, and since then I've been asked that a lot. And, and I always said, no, we, we will not have a, a major global pandemic. Uh, that new diseases would, would emerge, but that the global uh, biological and medical research community was so robust and so interconnected uh, and, and the World Health Organization and others were so on top of jumping on pan, you know, new diseases as soon as they hit like Ebola, uh, mm-hmm. that, that, that we would see new diseases emerge, but they would never evolve into a, a global um, worldwide pandemic. And I was wrong about that because uh, we underestimated the degree to which governments would uh, try to delay their response, deny what was going on. Uh, and just get too far behind the curve until it was out of control, and that's exactly what what happened a year ago. Yeah. So that, that that that's a little bit that's a little bit in terms of of scorecard. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it's good. I mean, and it's it's great, isn't it, to be able to go back and compare because you know, um, and often as well, you can you can be right about something, but then it can be you can one can be wrong about the the when, like you know, you know that something's going to happen, but you never. You know, there are so many variables that, that it's, you know, like you say, with moving from uh, petrol and diesel, uh, like it's being legislated, but perhaps things adoption will go faster and it won't it won't need to be, you know, because I think the UK is a cutoff of 2030, no more engines of that type, whereas it may happen if it gets adopted anyway. So I guess I'm hearing. Yes. That it, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that one, that specific one is is kind of a race between uh, uh, regulatory requirements. Uh, that are pushing for, you know, the, the elimination of, uh, of petrol cars. Uh, I think California is 2035, mm-hmm. uh, while well, you guys might, might be 2030. But, but it could be that just market forces uh, will, will push that faster. One, one of my major consulting assignments in the last two or three years has been working with a company, literally a company that provides uh, automobile loans. And they began, became very curious three years ago about uh, what would happen to the future of automobiles and private ownership of automobiles and would... For example, uh, shared autonomous vehicles and event, and then electric vehicles change the whole automobile game in such a way that it would really impact the auto loan business. So we began looking at that quite closely and have, have tracked that pretty closely over the last three years. And, and I will say that that on the electric side, you know, that the cost curves continue to be um, uh, coming down in such a way that that it's it, it looks pretty likely that that an average electric car and by an electric car I mean a robust electric car with you know, multi hundreds of miles range will be competitive cost-wise, perhaps cheaper cost-wise uh, to purchase than, than, than a, a typical gasoline or diesel car by, you know, somewhere past 2025 or so. And so uh, then the charging infrastructure and charging infrastructure at your home and so on is still an issue, but, but uh, you know, the, then the market could, could drive that adoption even slightly ahead of the regulatory requirements. But uh, but I think it's pretty safe to say by 2040 or so, uh, there will be a few um, gasoline and diesel relics driving around, and we might have them for special collectors and so on. But but I don't think they will be the uh, the dominant form of of personal transportation uh, 20 20 years from now. No, look, I would agree. I mean, because I mean, 
like there are Scottish islands which are generating enough renewable energy that they're having to come up with creative ways to use it. So they are running, they have Tesla battery packs and they're running the cars, the cars are electric and they're exporting their surplus energy. So when you reach the paradigm where, you know, the energy is too cheap to meter, it almost, I mean, and we're not there, but but already renewables are, are reaching the unit price and falling below, uh, you know, oil and gas, then, then it will flip. And then, you know, like it, people will yeah, make these decisions you know based for price not not for environmental reasons yeah absolutely it, it, that's a fascinating world I, I have noted recently that uh, some some forecasts or policy advocacy pieces that say you know if we install enough wind and solar uh, globally then you do reach a, a world of pretty significant energy surplus uh, and and it becomes re really very cheap to to the point where it's you know it's essentially free. Now you still have to you have to deal with the battery backup and you have to deal with hopefully uh, build out of more robust grids that can move energy where it needs to be uh, when it's available. You know we have this big disaster happening here in the United States in the state of Texas. Um, yeah, and, and that's primarily because and you might have noticed this uh, that. Um, it, it, it's it's because they didn't winterize their production facilities, their gas-powered uh, electricity plants, or 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 their wind plants. Um, they didn't winterize them as as they do in most most undoubtedly they do in Scotland um, and uh, Texas, uh, for various reasons, created its own internal state-only electricity grid, and is basically cut off from the rest of the United States. And so while states all around Texas who are suffering the same cold can receive excess electricity, let's suppose all the way from Scotland, uh, but not really. Um, they, so they don't have an energy shortage, even if their production facilities are having some trouble. But uh, And so a much more integrated and, as they say, smart grid will have to be part of that future if you're going to heavily rely on renewables. But all of that is quite doable, and it's it's a mystery why we don't actually move as fast as we can in that direction. Well, it's not that mysterious. People have vested interested in the way, in, in the way things are, so they hold on as long as they can. But but uh, it seems uh, financially logical that that's where we'll go. Yeah, yeah, and I think again, much like in many ways, the last four years was a bit an aberration. Uh, there's still a massive rise in jobs in the renewable sector. Um, when we were discussing about what to talk about, you you mentioned that you you felt that perhaps the future has changed. And and what in, in what you were just speaking to too, it made me think about black swans in terms of those events that you that just were not even on the horizon as something that could be predicted. So so therefore, you know, how do you factor in black swans into looking at the future and, and is it because of black swans that the, the future has changed? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, black swans are, are incredibly difficult to deal with. The, the most effective tool for dealing with them in the kind of futurist or strategic foresight toolbox, I think still is, um, I'll, come, I'll come to a little bit of machine language on this in, in a moment, but but still it's still a scenario planning so that, that one could, could could take, for example, dominant emergent trends and and develop, you know, three or four different alternative scenarios. But into into those scenarios, you you could drop black swans. But black swans are hard to think of because they're mm. literally by def, by definition unpredictable things. And so uh, that's why, for example, when I did the Boeing thing, I made sure we had science fiction writers there. And often, when I'm doing kind of large scale things that involve very long term thinking, I try to make sure I have science fictions uh, science fiction writers 
as part of kind of the subject matter experts because they're they're you know that's their job is thinking of black swans and asking what if uh, did this happen and so but you try to dream them up and drop them into the scenario and then ask you know what are what are all of the second and third order consequences and how do we deal with them um, but but they're just incredibly hard to to deal with the 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 thing that you can do is obviously tr try to build as as flexible and as dynamic a response system as you can so that you try to have um, you know in, in today's today's language we talk about trying to build more resilient infrastructure or more resilient cities you've just got to build more resilience into your uh, system so that they can uh, respond to surprises whether that's an asteroid strike or a, or a, uh, a pandemic which was sort of anticipated but not not to the degree we have it. Um, I have a colleague at, at futures.com. We have a, a think tank, and it's kind of, it's an it's kind of an informal group of um, independent uh, consultants and contractors, but we collaborate on various projects. And, and one of them is a graduate of one of the of the uh, future studies or strategic foresight academic programs, and her specialty is is applying um, kind of AI and, and machine learning to futures forecasting. Um, and she does that by um, using um, various tools to search for data, basically, on, on the internet, and then uh, assess that data for, you know, weak signals that 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 we intuitive humans would not otherwise see. And it could be that those kinds of tools, as AI develops uh, further over the next decade uh, or two, could become you know, I suppose it's not unrealistic that they could, you could use machine learning to begin to identify potential black swans. So, you know, the weakest of weak signals might uh, pop up and then a tool might be able to say, you know, that's going to cascade into something that's quite significant. So it could be that going forward, we, we have a little bit better, we might develop better tools for anticipating uh, black swans. But I will say, I, you know, I, but other than scenario planning, I, they have not been a big feature of my work. Yeah, and I guess by by the nature of what they are, you know, you know, the, the un, unknown unknowns that therefore are right. You know, I mean, correct. It's it's the challenge. Um, you, you mentioned that briefly, but so in general, how how do you stay informed uh, and up to date, particularly in your business, to 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 have your finger on the pulse? You know, uh, everybody in the business, uh, thank goodness for the internet, reads a lot. Uh, scans a lot. Uh, when in-person events were possible, I, I, I went to, you know, a fair number of in-person events. So sometimes as a participant, and then often as a speaker, and then I would hang out at them. I might go to a, you know, a Mobile World Congress, for example, and you know, to to do a presentation or to be part of something, and then hang out there for three days and try to glean as mm -hmm. much as I can. Um, uh, some, some uh, I know some futurists who are who are very um, good at being uh, connected into uh, research labs. So and I have some good, I have some interesting connections at the MIT Media Lab and in the MIT uh, Space Exploration Initiative. So I, I stay in touch with them, attend their events both online uh, and, and in person when when we do that again. So um, you know, it's it's not terribly mysterious. It's just it's a lot of reading, uh, uh, <laughs> watching TED talks um uh, attending mm -hmm. conferences uh talking to experts uh and, and so on and trying to um you know trying to think in 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 a holistic 
uh, way so that you aren't just focused, although there are some futures who, who are quite the specialists and they might only focused on the future of fintech. I, I know you've had some fintech uh, people on on recently, and I know some very good people who that you know that's what they focus on, and they can tell you everything that's happening in the banking world, in the crypto world, and how they're integrating or competing with each other, and so on. And I have been much more of a 360 degrees kind of futurist, where so I want to know about demographic trends and economic, you know, what's happening in economics and what's happening in politics and regulation and what's happening in environment and energy and and so on so and then try to put all that together into a larger kind of narrative um, and so you know you get you get gradations of, of, of people in the futures field between that high level of specialty and that high level of generality and i'm much more on the on the general side mm -hmm. so look i mean with that in mind uh, with the exciting events of last night and the fact that as well as the NASA one landing on Mars, we had a UAE one in, in orbit around Mars. Yes. Uh, the Chinese are going back to the moon. Um, this is great to see. Um, are, are we going to see bases on the moon and Mars, or, or is that slightly ahead of what we're really capable of achieving in this decade? I think that, yeah, no, I think by the end of the decade, we, we will see a permanent presence on, on the moon. Uh, I don't know, you know, uh, Elon Musk is, is is quite bullish and optimistic and as he always is uh, on sending um, people to Mars within the decade, actually, you know, be, he still hopes even before the middle of the decade. Um, and, and as long as, as, as Musk and Bezos uh, stay committed uh, to their space initiatives, I do think that, that we will see uh, much more development um, in space that would otherwise happen. What, what happens, of course, with, with governmental programs is they can wax and wane as administrations uh, change and public priorities change. And that's been a big problem with the space program since the days of Apollo. Yeah. Um, but, um, but now the advantages of, of becoming what, are, you know, becoming a space civilization are becoming more clear, more access to resources, uh, more things that you can do from space, Obviously, much more uh, value to robust communication networks uh, in in low Earth orbit. Um, that that I, I think that uh, that the development of space. Now, this is this is my own value set and opinion. Is kind of a, a um, it's an imperative for human civilization to to move outward. We're we're we are now really the first generation with the scientific capability, the technical and uh, capability, and and the financial wherewithal to uh, move in a more robust, just not a few explorers every now and then, but but actually moving more and more people and enterprises in, into space. We are finally capable of doing that. And it would be a shame to say, it would be a shame to say, well, let's wait another century and see whether we're still capable a hundred years from now. Uh, in fact, that's kind of one of Musk's argument is that we're capable of now, we should, we should go. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I'm kind of a Stephen Hawking fan on that, that for the very long term, and by very long term, I mean millions of years, survival of human, the human species and human civilization, uh, it probably is necessary that, that we become a space-faring kind of species moving into the solar system. And, uh, and eventually, if we can ever develop the technical capability, and who knows, that's a black swan thing right there, technical capability to, you know, approach some fraction of the speed of light or, or form or find some other uh, unknown physics breakthrough in physics that enables uh, travel beyond the solar system. 
uh, move out in, into the Milky Way. Um, I, I, I'm one who, you know, maybe maybe I've just read too much science fiction and been too much a, a fan of of, uh, of uh, space opera science fiction, but uh, but but I, you know, I, I think in terms of hundreds of thousands of years for the human species, or millions of years, and it's just inconceivable to me that we would be around a hundred thousand years from now or a million years from now and not be have populated uh, at least the solar system to the extent that it's livable and we can make it livable uh, or uh, if possible actually move beyond that and so i think that uh, uh, space is a robust um, business opportunity um, i i think that uh, uh, not to give too many secrets away, but I, but I, I, I know a, a Boeing, or not a Boeing, but a, a NASA a research manager who has a research director, actually. Uh, he's not the only one, but a research director and, uh, and NASA who, who argues that if we do things right uh, in, the, in, in the 21st century, 100 years from now, uh, there will be such a robust uh, space economy that financially, in terms of its dollar value, it might uh, start to rival the Earth economy, which is, you know, a quite radical statement for just 100 years from now. Uh, but uh, so somewhere in between nothing and that, I think, is, is definitely going to happen and I think should happen. Yeah. And I mean, I guess the thing is, is that um, the. the uh, the things that we've been able to achieve are coming faster and even like with the ability to create cures for a vaccine where previously it could have been years or decades um you know uh, the the progression of what we're able to do you know doesn't just move uh, in a linear process it can really ramp up very quickly so yeah absolutely i think it's once you launch the boat then then everything else can follow really can't it yes yes uh absolutely you know vaccines really good example of probably ex exponential uh, growth, uh, solar energy, terrific example uh, of how exponential growth uh, works, uh, wind, uh, the same thing. Uh, and, um, you know, when, when Elon Musk um, uh, developed the, the actual, not just a test, but an actual reusable, uh, reusability for boosters, booster rockets, uh, I've been told, again, by this NASA source that I know, that that decrease the cost of access to space by a factor of 14. Mm. Uh, and, and, and I know that if, if um, the, the, the larger spaceship that, that he's uh, testing now, the Starship, which of course he's, he's crashing, trying to figure out how to make that thing work. Um, if that succeeds, then, then the cost, then you get even a, a bigger, uh, probably a, a, a factor of, uh, decrease in, in, in the cost of sending a kilogram to space that's probably larger than, than a factor of 14. And, and then you can, you know, then you start getting bigger and bigger leaps. And the technological capability around uh, autonomous flight and, uh, you know, uh, computer, basically the, 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 the capability of, of AI to calculate, you know, simple things like calculating trajectories and keeping track of everything and so on and so forth. All of that is just, you know, leaping ahead. And so, as we develop the ability, I think you you are absolutely correct that that we'll see something, something that that technically at least can be called exponential growth, even though it may not be doubling on that fast of time scale. It may be doubling every few decades or something. But but uh, but we'll see accelerated growth. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess it's almost like a Moore's law for space or something. Yeah. Um, 
So, so I guess to, to, to wrap it up then, what, what, what do you feel are the, the, the key challenges and opportunities for, from where we are now going forwards? Um, because, you see, I guess we have this, this, this dual-edged thing where on one hand, w w there's a lot of exciting innovation. And on the other hand, climate change is a massive issue that, that could make large parts of the planet uninhabitable. So I guess, uh, are, are you optimistic looking forwards or, or where are you on that scale? I am optimistic looking forward, but uh, this is where I, I believe that we are. You, you might have heard this term, a lot of the listeners probably have heard the term, the great filter. There was the famous Drake equation that sh that suggested the possibility, the probability that there are Earth-like planets all over the solar system, I mean, all over the, the, the galaxy mm -hmm. uh, and the universe. And, uh, and actually more recent calculations with the, the, as we find planets around stars, the most recent estimate is that 25% of the stars you see in the sky have Earth-like habitable planets around them. That's an incredible number. Yeah. Um, and so then the question is, why don't we see more evidence of civilization elsewhere in the, in the galaxy? And uh, and so then 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 you come up against this thing called Fermi's paradox, and like, where is everybody? <laughs> and 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 the most. Um, I guess I would, I would say the most uh, consensusly agreed upon theory is, is called the Great Filter, that uh, as a civilization achieves the technological capability that we have now to actually begin moving into space, they simultaneously are in a position of beginning to destroy their environment and having weapons of mass destruction capable of destroying everything. And those things maybe all come together. That that as you develop the technological capability, these other things happen uh, quite naturally. And so the great filter is, can you overcome yeah. uh, the, these challenges? And that's where I think we are in the 21st century. And, and obviously the, the greatest of, of, the, of these filters is the environmental uh, global warming uh, climate change challenge. We have to solve that in the 21st century uh, if we're going to have a, a robust and good future that includes uh, being spacefaring. If we don't, we won't, you know, the, uh, we will have uh, the kind of economic and financial uh, and civilization collapse that uh, that you know uh, may have, maybe has happened elsewhere in the galaxy, and civilizations develop this ability, but then they can't get through that filter. The first filter is is environmental climate change. The second filter, I think, is is global cooperation. The one we mentioned as related to the pandemic, that if if you have a uh, a global civilization with billions of people and you're still competing with each other. Uh, in a way that is destructive and potentially very destructive if you ever got into to major armed conflict, uh, then you're not going to get through the filter. So uh, you have to, in this century, we have to develop better, more robust and lasting uh, global governance structures and global governance uh, attitudes. Uh, and then um, the, third, the third filter is, uh, is finding the right balance, I think, um, with our technological capability around machine learning, around uh, artificial intelligence, around life extension and, and, and all of that, so that we don't sort of inadvertently uh, dehumanize our species in, in such a way uh, that, uh, that while it's fine that we're sending some, some very smart, uh, generally artificially intelligent robots to the moons of, uh, of Jupiter, the moons of Saturn, uh, the human species, as we know it, as you and I know it, is no longer around to enjoy that. Somehow, I think that we have to get that balance right. I have no doubt that we will. 
I, I actually am quite optimistic on that. I think it's it's almost um, people talk about this, and 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 I think it's it's wise to to try to try to be smart as we develop these technologies. But I think that fear is kind of overblown. But those three things, I, I think, are 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 the greatest challenges. Uh, so uh, climate change, uh, global cooperation slash global governance, and then getting the the sort of human AI life extension balance. Uh, right, so that we are who we want to be a hundred years from now, as we have uh, all these capabilities and, and have passed through the filter, and now can really become a full-on full um, uh, spacefaring civilization that also has a very good home planet to live on. Yeah, yeah, I guess you we, we, the, you can't do them in isolation, and we need to have both. Um, it's been a, a pleasure to talk to you. How can people uh, learn more about you and your work? It's very easy. Uh, look up futurist.com. And uh, there's a uh, there's there's a form on the contact page. Send me a note, uh, or they can find me on Twitter at Glenn Heemstra. Um, uh, I do tend to be a bit political there, so watch out. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Glenn Heemstra, uh, and and then you can email me through futures.com as well. Actually, Glenn at futures.com. My first name, single end, Glenn at futures.com. Uh, I I do see emails, so uh, uh, lots of ways to track me down. Awesome. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Simon, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the latest Irish Tech News podcast. Check back every day for the latest episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish underscore tech news. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Irish Tech News. On LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Irish dash tech dash news. On Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Irish Tech News dot IE. And on TikTok, tiktok.com forward slash at Irish Tech News.